Welcome to the Valley Church. Our mission is to see changed lives, and we hope this relevant teaching inspires you to take the next step in your journey. Thanks for checking out the podcast and enjoy the message. Good morning. Um, it is great to be with you. We all, you guys have a wonderful church. It's just a great culture, great inviting community. I am a part of Lima Community Church of the Nazarene. My husband is the executive pastor, and he is speaking there this morning, and I'm here, so we just prayed over each other and parted ways this morning, so I'm, I'm, I'm honored to get to be with you all. So uh, I, just so you know, I am a counselor, um, I'm a professional counselor, and so uh, the topic we're going to kind of dive into today has the potential to have some heaviness to it. We're going to look at uh, the topic of depression, and sometimes when that gets really heavy into suicide. Uh, and so I just want you to know, but I believe God has hope for this. And so I, as we talk, I, I hope that you will leave with a lot more hope uh, regarding this topic. So uh, to kick this off, I don't know if you have noticed this at all, but I think that we tend to be pendulum people. And here's what I mean by that. So my dad's a a retired physicist, so he teaches me these things, and then I incorporate them into counseling. So I, I think that we are extremists, right? So we tend to swing one way direction way over here, and then we go all the way the other direction until we finally realize neither one's healthy and we figure it out, right? So in the field of mental health, one of the things that I, I have seen us go extremist on is we've, we went way over here to the belief that there's not such a thing as mental health, right? That all you need is to pray more, read your Bible more, be more with Jesus, and then you'll be fine. So we went way over here to like, all you need is Jesus. And then um, we are now unfortunately swinging because a pendulum, however far you pull it this way, it goes the equal direction on the other side. So this pendulum swung way over here to now, even in the church, there is a mentality that all you need is mental health. And this is greatly concerning to me, that we have this belief that you just need mental health skills, you just get through it, read a good book, get some skills, you'll be all right. You just need mental health. And neither one is accurate. And it breaks my heart because in in a pendulum, when you pull to one side, it goes all the way to the other side until it finds the center of gravity again. And I think the, the area of that that God has for us is that faith and mental health were never meant to be separate. They absolutely go together. And I think that was God's design from the very beginning. And we have tried to separate those out. And it's causing a lot of damage. So let me kind of give you some, some context for this from Scripture, why I think these two things were meant to be intersected. So the first verse is in Mark 12, 29 through 31. And this is Jesus' response to being asked, what is the greatest commandment? He answered this way. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, when we hear this concept of love, this, this resonates with us. We get it. Yes, I can love with all my heart, which is my emotions and my soul, like my whole being. And we get the strength, like our behavior and how we do it and loving our neighbors or self. We get that. Have you ever thought about loving God with your mind? We often leave this out, but I think Jesus knew this is all-encompassing. If you love me, do your, do your thoughts about yourself or others ever sound unloving? Yeah, and Jesus said to love me means to love me with your mind too. He didn't leave that part out. 
Then in Ephesians 1, Paul is writing, and I'm taking this, this from the message because I love how it says it. It says, long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love to be made whole and holy by his love. Don't you love that? It doesn't say just holy. God wasn't just concerned that out of love we'd be made holy. He also wanted us whole. And those two things go together. It's really hard to live holy lives when you're not whole, right? It's really hard. That impacts it. And so he came for both of those things. And then in 1 Peter, uh, it says this in 1 Peter 1.3, his divine power has given us everything needed for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Do you get this? His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. He didn't just say just for godliness. It's for life too. We have to live this life. We have to do this this side of heaven. He knew there were things you need for life and for godliness. And he has the power to give us both of those things. And I could go on. There are so many scriptures that really pair these two together um, in, in such a rich way that shows us that extremists is not the right way. It's this integration of the two together that I think is where God wants us to land. Now, if you have ever felt depressed in your life, if you've ever had those down emotions and that heaviness in your heart, you're in good company with a lot of people in scripture. So I just kind of want to review a little bit some who experienced depression in, in, in God's word and how they coped with it. What did they do with it? So you have Saul. Saul was often very depressed, very weighted down, and he coped with that by music. So he would have David bring in the harp and play music for him. That was one of his coping strategies. Hannah was depressed because she couldn't have children. She needed a message of hope, and the scripture says she needed nourishment. Naomi was dealing with intense grief that led her to depression. She had lost almost her whole family. What she needed was the presence of Ruth to walk with her through her grief. Elijah was so depressed that he said, Lord, just let me die. Like he was just so depressed and he needed some food. Have you ever been there? Like, I mean, the angel was like, dude, you're just kind of sinking here. You need to eat something and we need to get your mind back on track. And he was like, his, his mind had gotten so fearful that he was just paralyzed. And they said, we got to get you some food and then we need to get going, right? We need to move. And so Elijah dealt with that. Jeremiah is, was, he is called the weeping prophet. He is a depressed prophet. Um, he says things like, cursed be the day I was born. You know, he, he was just really, he was struggling with the way that the people were hearing the word of God and he needed God's message of hope to give. Jesus was depressed. When he was in the garden of Gethsemane, I think that Jesus probably felt a heaviness unlike any of us have ever felt. When he was praying, Lord, let this cup be taken from me, but not my will yours be done. And in that moment, do you remember he, he several times went back to the disciples and said, would you please stay and pray with me? He needed people with him when he was in his moment of depression. 
Paul was often depressed and down due to the persecution that the church was facing, that he was facing, due to um, the uh, impact of different cultural things around people, new believers that were taking them away from the church and getting them distracted. This was heavy to him. He was misunderstood. And Paul chose to deal with this by focusing on changing his thoughts. If you read any letter that Paul wrote, he is always addressing thoughts, right? Your thoughts change your thinking. And he would often do that through thanksgiving. He writes a lot on giving thanks, thanksgiving. David, David in the Psalms, bless David's heart. You know, have you all ever had your journal published for the whole world to read? This man, my word, right? He, he has written all of his like deep felt heart emotions out. You know the book of Psalms, the purpose of it is to t- teach us what it means to be authentic with God. David was called a friend of God. He got the stuff out, you know? And I can imagine when we're reading one of these Psalms that David in heaven's like, okay, I wish I could explain that. That was a really bad day. I wish I could like tell you what was going on there. He speaks so metaphorically and... Um, But he got it out. David dealt with his depression through writing. He he would write psalms. He would write music. He would play music. He He references nature a lot, which tells me that he was out in creation. He was out in nature looking at what was around him, and he also used praise. Several of his psalms, he will he will get out the hard stuff in the end. He says, yet I will praise you. Right? He used these things as ways to cope. So in scripture, it's not void of people who have walked through depression. So if you have ever felt that you're in good company, God's word is for you. And I love it because in scripture, they did something better than we do. And that's called lament. So these people who were dealing with it, nobody was like, okay, hurry quick. We got to get you out. Let's give you quick coping skills and let's just get moving. You know, like they didn't do that. They're like, okay, this is heavy. Let's sit there. Let's acknowledge it. Let's lean into the pain of this moment. And it was through that heaviness that they encountered God's hope and his joy and his peace that shifted them out of it. See, we, in our culture, we don't like to feel even a little bad. And so when we dip just a little, we're like, quick, oh, hurry, coping skill, coping skill. I can't feel this, can't feel this. Instead of allowing ourselves to say, Lord, I got to lean into this pain so that I can find you there. And that's when he then lifts us out of that. I just had a client just last week. She told me, she said, Karen, I'm finally starting to sit with my emotions, acknowledge them. They don't feel good. But when I acknowledge them and lean into them, I actually start to feel better. She said, who knew? Right? And this is, this is God's gift to us, showing us how to do this. Well, at Cornerstone um, of Hope, which is the counseling center that I'm the director of, uh, we, um, we're very, we're neuroscience nerds, okay? We love studying the brain and neuroscience and, and what they're learning. And the reason we love that is because so much of what we're learning about the brain uh, through neuroscience is backing up God's word. It's so proving that God's word and his ways are accurate and right, and they are best for us. And so I'm going to go a little neuroscience-y on you, okay? Can you just hang with me for a bit? I want you to understand a couple things about the brain and depression before we move on. So I'm going to show you a slide uh, that has a, um, a, a, a brain scan of a depressed brain and a non-depressed brain, okay? So let me just explain this real quick. So when 
when you're experiencing depression, it causes a rise in cortisol levels. Cortisol is the stress hormone, okay? So that's stress in your life. Uh, so depression causes a rise in, in that stress, the cortisol levels, which impede the development of neurons in your brain, okay? So it keeps neurons from happening. So these are neurotransmitters. Neurons transmit information back and forth. And when that cannot happen, the level of cortisol rises and it causes other parts of the brain, like your prefrontal cortex, which tells you the truth and logic and reasoning and helps you, helps you process through things. It causes that area and others to shrink while the amygdala gets bigger. So the amygdala is the part of your brain that is your fight, flight, or freeze, okay? So that's the part of your brain that's looking for threats, and it feels like there's, there's threats coming at you. And so in this scan, it's showing you the one that has more blue and green colors, that is um, in the decreased white and yellow, that's showing you decreased brain activity due to depression, where the other one has a lot of brain activity happening and it is not depressed. Now, here's the really cool news. They used to think, well, if you have depression, that's it. I mean, I guess that's it. You're kind of stuck. And what we have learned is that the brain, God is so creative as our, as our creator, that he has designed a brain that can actually heal itself. And you, he, all through Old and New Testament, he says, I am the God who makes all things new. And do you know that includes our brain? He makes your brain new. Our brains are neuroplastic, which means they can change and re realign themselves. And so here's how this is done. So can the brain repair itself when there's depression? Yes. In um, the next slide, I'm going to show you some neurons. Okay, I promise. We're not going to stay too sciencey all time. Okay, but I'm going to show you some neurons. They're, they're the things in the blue. And do you see, they have got these little spindly things off of them that look like veins in a leaf. Those are called dendrites. And what they have found is that dendrites, um, they send and receive electrical signals to communicate the neurons together. And when that is inhibited, it affects all the cells in the body, especially the muscles. Have you ever felt depressed and felt like you just don't want to move? This is what's happening, right? So all every because there's no communication happening up there, it, it affects all the other cells and it makes you feel like oh, I just don't want to move. I don't want to do anything. So these dendrites, because they don't disappear when you have depression, they are finding that that is what the brain can still, they're available. They are available to be used. And if they can get working again, which they can, and they're learning all kinds of ways, and I'm going to teach you some of those ways to get those firing again today, once those start working again, then it can, the brain begins to heal from the depression. So... Uh, this, it, 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 when you look at depression medication, okay, so if anybody's ever taken medication for depression, what that medication is actually doing, it's increasing the activity of those dendrites communicating and the neurons. It's creating more movement in your brain and it is reducing the breakdown of what's called happy chemicals. God has given us a natural way to get a, a um, to overcome depression through these happy chemicals of, um, things like uh, serotonin and dopamine and noradrenaline and oxytocin. And so those are from your connections with people. Those are from accomplishments, like being productive, um, working hard at things, um, getting moving, 
uh, feeling respected, all of those things come together uh, and re- release these happy chemicals into, into our body. And so depression medication is getting the neurons firing and it keeps those chemicals from breaking down so that they stay up and working for you. And this is why sometimes medication and counseling are needed for depression. Because it's not just medication alone. The reason that all that's happening is often something un- underlying the depression, that sometimes if all we do is medication, we're not always addressing what caused it in the first place. Where did it come from? Where, where do we need to address? And so today we're going to kind of look at some of those underlying factors. Now, it used to be that we thought that depression was just a chemical imbalance, right? It's just, well, I'm chemically imbalanced, so I have depression, which doesn't feel like there's a lot of hope for that then what they're finding is that's not entirely true. While it does affect the chemicals in you, it's mostly a multifactorial concern. So depression can come from childhood experiences. So some of, some of us have experienced really difficult experiences in our childhood that we haven't yet dealt with. And so they get triggered again and again uh, until they are dealt with. Life events, stressors, anybody ever been stressed? Yeah, anybody ever had like multiple stressors hitting you? When that happens in life and we have multiple stressors at one time, we often find ourselves at the place where we feel overwhelmed. And so then our brain says, I can't do it, can't do it, we're just going to shut down, right? And I can't do this. And we pull away into, into depression. Styles of thinking. Anybody know anybody who's kind of more on the pessimistic side? Like they kind of see, see the negative side of things? That can be changed. Good news. That can be changed. People are not stuck with that. But our style, how do you think on a normal basis? And we're going to deal with a lot of thinking later. Other mental health concerns. So if people are dealing with bipolar disorder or um, uh, schizophrenia or even uh, post-traumatic stress disorder or um, some, in, some of the anxiety disorders, that other factors can contribute to feeling uh, of depression. Uh, physical health problems. Anybody ever been in pain? That is not fun. And when it lasts over a long period of time, that's your focus is on it. And when it feels like you can't get it to go away, sometimes it just causes a hopeless feeling inside. And so pain or physical health conditions um, or health problems can, can cause that. Family history. Now, here's the interesting part of family history. A lot of times we think, well, if somebody in my family had depression, then that's probably, I'm going to get it too. And that's not true. The family history piece is not necessarily genetic. It is what was modeled to you. So if somebody had depression and they were modeling that as this is how I feel in life, this is how I cope with it, then a lot of times we repeat those cycles, okay? So that um, has, has a family history component. Medication. Some medications that you're taking that aren't even psychiatric medications, they could be for a physical uh, issue or concern. Those things um, can sometimes, the side effects can cause depression. And so if if you're dealing with depression, you don't know where it came from, but you started taking a new medication, check the side effects and talk to your doctor because sometimes it's a a medical. Uh, Thyroid issues also cause a lot of depression. We're always asking people to get physically checked before we give a diagnosis of depression because it might be there's a physical thing or a medication issue. Recreational drugs and alcohol. This is... 
This is important to note that these things, recreational drugs and alcohol, are actually changing the brain. They are doing, causing changes in the brain that are detrimental. Right now, due to the increased use of even medical marijuana, um, and, and because it's so readily available, we are seeing a rise in paranoia and deep depression and a lot of, of psychotic episodes um, because of that. Now, I'm not blaming it all on that. I think it's, I think there's a lot of multifactorial things going on. But we have to be really cautious when we're taking substances into our body. What is it doing uh, to us? And could depression be a result of that? Uh, Sleep, diet, and exercise. Don't you love it when people bring these things up? You know, do y'all know that God intended for us to sleep? Do you know that's a good thing? Teenagers say amen, right? This is good. Yeah, he, in, he intended for us to sleep, and yet it's the thing that we keep pushing off. I don't need sleep. It's okay. I, I'll get to stay up longer. Do you know that you don't function well when you don't sleep? In fact, your brain is like it's, it's drunk when you're asleep. That is, that is the, the, what's happening. That is the detriment when you don't get good sleep. And... Um, uh, there are times in my office that I have clients in and I think, I think the best thing you could do is sleep right now. Like if you just want to take an hour and lay down, I'll go in my, I'll go in the other part of my office and do my notes and I won't even charge you for the session, you know, and, because I think they'd be better if they could just sleep. Sleep is crucial to our health. Diet, what you put into your body goes into your gut. They have now called the gut our second brain because what you put in your gut it fuels your brain. And if what you're putting in is not healthy, then it is actually causing swelling in parts of the brain that increase depression and anxiety and several other factors. So what you take in matters. Um, Exercise. We aren't big movers anymore. We are not doing a lot of movement. Here's what's interesting they found with exercise. When you get moving, the blood flow in your brain shifts back to your hippocampus, which is your emotion center. When you stop moving, your heart re-regulates. All the blood flow flips back to your prefrontal cortex, which is why people can concentrate better, they can think clearer, they they can handle situations better because they've been moving, right? God gave us the ability to move for a reason, and it is for our, our health. So it's not just a negative experience itself that causes depression. It's multifactorial. But this is really important. How we cope with these things and the support we have around us tells us how likely we are to even experience depression or how we're going to come through it. So it's, it, we're not doomed if we just have it, but how we cope with it and the people we put around us matter when we're dealing with anything like that. So we're going to dive into a little bit of what is underlying some of this, and a lot of that comes from our thinking. And there's a great book on depression called Unstuck by James Gordon. It's not a faith-based book, but I still believe he speaks a lot of truth. And we're going to we're going to look into some of uh, these contributors to depression that he he addresses in his book. So one of those is procrastination. Do we have any procrastinators? Okay, yes, I get it. And you know what? That does not mean you have depression, all right? That's not it. However, when we procrastinate something that we know has to get done, a lot of times we're we're procrastinating because it seems like a daunting thing. seems like a big um, project or a big thing, something that we're just avoiding. And I I have to change this to, I just can't do it. I can't. And we feel hopeless and our brain begins to shut down because of that. And when you delay... 
actually getting something done. Have you ever noticed it magnifies the stress? Have you noticed that? Like, oh, I'll just do it tomorrow. And then it feels bigger because it doesn't go anywhere, right? It's still there. And so procrastination is, so to overcome procrastination or avoidance, right? Anything you're avoiding, um, sometimes you need to actually get moving. You need to get active. This is interesting with depression. For anxiety, we're often teaching how to de-escalate, right? How to calm the brain down, how to deep breathe and muscle relax. For depression, sometimes we need the opposite. We need to get moving and get active and actually breathe more rapidly to get those dendrites to start working and connecting so that you feel like you have some momentum. And so that is so important when you're avoiding, you may need to get moving to get things going, to break an immovable pattern. Um, Or you may need to do something that's just not super significant, but you can accomplish it. Like if you can just get one thing done, that sends the dopamine surge to your brain of accomplishment, and then you're like, okay, what's next, right? Then you can do the next thing. So procrastination can sometimes be a contributor to depression. Guilt and pride, okay. Now, there's a couple types of guilt that we need to talk about. So one is is the guilt that the Holy Spirit gives when we're living outside of God's best. I had a client who came in and he was dealing with depression. This was years ago. And he said, okay, I'm, I'm really dealing with some depression. I said, okay, well, tell me about it. Tell me when it started. When did you start noticing it? He said, well, I'm... I'm having an affair right now. Um, and he said, I, I, it started when I started having this affair and this depression. I just can't get it to lift. And I said, well, sir, um, I'm not sure that I can help you feel better about this. You know, there, there is guilt there because you're living outside of God's best. And I'm not so sure that any, any tools I'm going to give you are going to lift that. Right? So, but I want to be very careful that you hear me correctly, that I am not saying that depression is because you have sinned, okay? That is not it at all. Sometimes it is because we don't want to stop living outside of God's best. We're enjoying whatever we're doing. We don't want to stop it. And you're not going to feel good doing it, right? That's, That's not God's best for you. And you may need to confess and move from that. Now, there's another type of guilt that happens when someone does something to us right? We didn't do it, but we take it on as our own. And I see this a lot with people who have been abused in their past, have had some kind of trauma or maybe a really difficult upbringing. Um, they, they, they didn't cause the pain, but they have chosen to own the pain as they, it was their fault. That is not yours. You cannot own what you did not do, what is not yours. And so that, that is something that is called false guilt. And a lot of people are living in that and it causes depression when we're owning stuff that is not ours to own. Now there's one other and, and uh, that really deals with pride. This is the guilt and the, the pride piece. So this, is, this one is tough. So um, when the people, a lot of times with depression, will say, well, I have just such low self-worth. I have low self-worth. And do you know they spend a lot of time talking about themselves? Low self-worth is actually an inverted form of pride. I do not like this definition, okay? Because I have to wrestle with this myself. When, when we have this inverted form of pride, it's all about, well, they won't like me. I'm not good enough. They didn't think this of me. I won't have this enough. It's all about us. And it is not about our Savior, right? Our Creator and who He made us to be. And so we have to watch these things that are contributors to depression. Perfectionism. Any perfectionists? 
Yeah, I know, because we're human, right? We are not robots, and we deal with these things, right? So perfectionism, this is always looking for flaws in ourself or in others and fighting to erase them. I hear this a lot from teenagers um, who very much, I can't get anything less than an A, I have to be first at everything, I have to be the best, and they absolutely live in the tension of this, and it causes depression because that's just not realistic. Do you know one of the miracles in life is that we as humans can fail at things and learn from them and improve. We can refine. It's amazing. It's such a cool gift that we have been given. And so um, when we, we are um, determined that we have to be perfectionistic, you're going to fail at that because you cannot be that. And so then it leads to these places of depression. There's also, in this perfectionistic mindset, right now in our culture, this belief that the higher stressed I am, the more value I have. And so it's gotten to this place that we want to be more stressed because we think the more and more stressed I am, I'm the winner, I'm the most stressed, I'm the most valuable. Is this not ridiculous? They call it stress Olympics. We are fighting to have the gold medal of being stressed. Who came up with this, right? This is never, ever once in Jesus's message you ever hear him saying, I want to call you to be my follower and I need you to be super stressed all the time. You know, I just want you to be stressed out because then you'll be my most valuable follower. We never hear, where did we as the church even start accepting this as as valuable? This is never Jesus's mentality for us. But this, we have this idea that I need to be perfect and do everything and have it all and and, and make sure I'm so stressed that everybody knows I'm I'm, I'm okay, I'm, I'm working hard, I'm doing it. That's not God's intent, not God's intent. And as people who follow Jesus, we cannot live like this world does in that. We have to live differently. Loneliness is another one. Now I'll tell you, when I moved from when we moved from Cleveland to Lima, um, I loved our church. I loved my my friend community, my Bible study group. I loved our our um, our community there. It was a really hard move for me um, to move to Lima, and I didn't know everybody that. And um, I was I was having a moment of feeling sorry for myself, and I was praying like, Lord, I just I'm so lonely. I feel so alone, and I was really like really thinking, God, I need you to give me a psalm that's just going to lift my spirit. You know, like I'm thinking, have you ever done this? Like you're really expecting God to like just come through with like a a real uplifting, you poor thing. I just need to speak into you. Have you ever had God do the opposite? So here's what he said. I was bemoaning, feeling sorry for myself, ready for him to just feel sorry for me. And instead he said, Carrie, you are only lonely if you want to be. I was not expecting that, but he was so right. Don't you hate it when he's right? He's always right. You know, and so I, I realized I was doing nothing to engage with people. I was not asking to meet. I was not saying hi. I was not going, I'm, we're lonely if we want to be. There is a world that needs you. You are, loneliness is something that we can do something about. And it's so important. Now in this, I will also say, that when depression hits, because those dendrites aren't firing well and that serotonin and oxytocin, those connecting hormones aren't, aren't manifesting well, the thing that we need the most, which is people, is the thing that seems the hardest to do. 
It's so hard when we're depressed to reach out to people. It's so hard to say, I'm struggling, can I connect with you? And yet it's the thing we need the most. And I will also say here that grief, if you have walked through grief or you know somebody who is through loss, that's a form of loneliness, right? That's a form of um, feeling so lonely because the person you love so much is gone. And do you know that we were never intended to grieve alone? We were intended to grieve as a community. And so this loneliness piece that depression can, or I'm sorry, that grief can lead to depression often comes in the form of loneliness and needing to grieve in a community. Indecisiveness, okay? So have you ever had a decision and it's looming and you know you got to make it, but you don't want to because you're afraid you're going to disappoint somebody or you're afraid you don't know all the details. So when we live in indecisiveness and we just keep pushing it off and off, then we end up as a contributor to being depressed because we feel like we are, in, we cannot do it. We cannot make this happen. And if that's what you're dealing with, then maybe start making a small decision decision, such as decide which fast food restaurant you're going to go to. You made it. You did it. You made a decision, right? Or decide, am I going to walk just down the street or am I going to walk around the block? Make a decision, right? Make something that you're like, I can make a decision. And you keep working up from there to get a decision. I can't tell you how many people in my office have come in so relieved once they finally made a tough decision. It's made. Now we deal with the decision, right? But the indecisiveness is a contributor. And the last one he talks about is resentment. So this is something that we tend to justify. They wronged me. I have a right to feel this way. I have a right to be angry. I have a right to get back at them. I have a right to feel this and hold this. And that just keeps you bound to the other person, right? And so instead of allowing this resentment to to raise up in you, sometimes we need healthy ways to express it to talk about it. Anger isn't wrong, but we it's an indicator that something has been wronged. And we need to deal with that and talk through that so we don't hold it. And I want to say this, forgiveness is the process that's needed here. Forgiveness doesn't mean you make it okay. It will never be okay. But it is a relinquishing it to the Lord and that person to handle so that you no longer have to be the punisher in your own mind. And there's a whole process of that. But that is what's needed. But resentment will keep you. And I have also seen most resentment can be handled if it had been addressed in like five minutes closer to when it actually happened, it would not be an issue. We are such story writers that when someone wrongs you, you or, or you think they have, you will write a story that they intended to harm you, they meant to hurt you, and this is why, and you now have chapters proving why, you've written a novel, you have a series, and a movie, right? I mean, this is what happens, and we hold it, and I can't tell you how many times when this has, when I have worked with people, and I get back to when it started, and they're able to say, hey, here's how I interpreted that. Am I right or am I off base? They are almost always off base. That is almost never the intent of the person who harmed them. People rarely wake up in the morning and think, oh, I wonder how I could hurt them today. I mean, this is just, this is not how humans operate. And so, um, 
when you have that, if you can resolve it quickly rather than letting it grow over time, resentment doesn't have to be there. The other piece of this is if you have been wronged, and some of you have been wronged terribly, that is a bigger forgiveness issue to work through, and I understand that. And you may not be able to reconcile, and it may not be safe to reconcile with that person. And there are other ways that God has given us to do that. In psychology tools in 2020, they did a study and found that for us to have well-being, a full sense of well-being, we need three things. We need pleasure, productivity, and connection. And so that, and when one of these is missing, we're not doing well. So it feeds into these things that are contributing to depression, right? If we're not doing something that we enjoy, if you're not doing anything that is life-giving to you, that's not going to be going well. If you're not productive, if you're not able to accomplish things, that is not good for you. And if you're not connecting with life-giving people, people who when you're with, you feel better being with them, then you're not going to be doing well. These are things that God desired for us, and we we find all of these in his word that he, he talks about. We need all of these things. Well, I looked up some statistics because I was curious to see how many thoughts do we actually have a day? Like how many of these are we dealing with? And I will tell you, it must be really hard to measure thoughts because the research is very broad in, in the numbers of thoughts that they think that we have each day. It ranges from between 6,000 to 50,000 thoughts a day. All right? So somewhere in there, regardless, it's a lot. Did you know you think this much? Now you know why you're tired sometimes, right? At the end of the day. So between 6,000 and 50,000 thoughts a day is what we have. Now, regardless of the disagreement on how many thoughts, what the research does agree on is that 80% of those thoughts are negative. 80%. And of that 80%, 95% are repetitive thoughts. So we are... Out of all of our thoughts in a day, often 80% of those are negative and they're on cycle. They're on repeat. Does anybody ever have this? Negative thoughts in your head that are on repeat and cycle? Absolutely. Because we're humans. We're not robots. And this is the research. And I just have to say, as followers of Jesus, that doesn't have to be our case. This doesn't have to be our statistic. And so we all want to look at, real quick at a passage that Paul has written. And remember, I love Paul because he talks about thoughts all the time. I'm pretty sure Paul is a cognitive behavioral therapist. And so uh, my, my staff at Cornerstone, we cannot wait to sit down with coffee with Paul in heaven. Like we got a lot of questions for him and it just feels really, really unfair that Paul got to be Holy Spirit inspired and we all had to pay to go to school, but we'll talk about that in heaven. So um, anyway, this, this passage in, in um, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, Paul says this. He says, indeed, we live as human beings, but we do not wage war according to human standards. For the weapons of our warfare are not merely human, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every proud obstacle raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, first of all, I really appreciate that Paul said, um, a deed, we live as human beings. Thank you, Paul. Like, thank you for just acknowledging we are human, okay? We live this side of heaven. And then he said, but we don't wage war according to human standards. We don't have to be the statistics, right, that, that are, are presented. He said, our weapons aren't human. They have divine power to destroy strongholds. Do you remember that passage I read at the beginning? His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness, right? This is what we have, this ability to take thoughts captive and make sure they line up with Christ. 
So um, in, my, in, in my field of mental health, we call, uh, when we do with negative thoughts, we call them ants, automatic negative thoughts, all right? And in, in, our, in our world, when you're putting out an ant trap to ca- connect, collect the ants, you know, like you're trapping the ants, it's flipped. So in mental health, the ants trap you, okay? The automatic ne- negative thoughts tend to trap us. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna breeze through some of these um, because I want you to, um, I want to grow your awareness. Do you know that self-awareness is one of God's greatest gifts to us? You can't change anything until you're aware of it. Till you know it's there. You won't change it. And so once we become aware of what we're thinking, we can do something about it, right? That engages our prefrontal cortex, which allows us to make decisions and do something. So I'm going to, I'm going to read some of these. These are the typical um, thought traps or ant traps that we tend to fall into and see if you can recognize any in your life. The first one is all or nothing, overgeneralizing. So in this trap, this is the thinking that says, if I'm not perfect, I have failed. I do it right or I'm not at all. This is that perfectionistic mindset that contributes to depression. Mental filter or disqualifying the positive. I hear this often. So somebody may have done a whole lot of things right, but they did one thing wrong. And that's all they can see. And so they filter out all the good and they focus in on that date. Disqualify the positive and focus in so they're not really taking in the whole picture at all. Jumping to conclusions, um, which is uh, mind reading and fortune telling. So this, this happens when you walk in a room and you think, oh, I know they think this of me. I saw that face. I know that's what they're thinking. I know that's what that tone of voice meant. Um, have you ever had somebody tell you, I know what you think? We don't like that. Right? And, and we don't have this power. Like, I don't like it when people say, I know you think this of me. That is not what I was thinking. Like, and how dare you put that thought in my head, right? That wasn't there. Um, yeah, so we, we have this idea that everyone is thinking about us. Do you know that people aren't thinking about you as much as you think they are? They're worried about what you think of them. Okay? Like, you're not on their mind as much as you think you are. All right? So, um, so we, we do this mind reading or we do fortune telling. Fortune telling is when you wake up in the morning, you're like, this is going to be the worst day. It's going to be a crappy day. You know? Or you go to a, a project, like, this is going to fail. This is, we're never going to get through this. This is going to be the worst event ever. Right? Do you know that? No, you don't. You're fortune telling. And do you know that God, in his grace, did not give us those superpowers? We do not have the powers of mind reading and fortune telling. Praise God right? This is good, but we think we do, but we're usually wrong, all right? And so we, we have to watch those. Magnification and minimization. So this is catastrophizing things. So my husband loves the St. Louis Cardinals. He's a baseball fan. And um, it could be the first inning of a game, the first strikeout that the Cardinals strike out, and he has said, well, they lost the game. Like, honey, there's just like nine innings. He's like, nope, they lost. They've lost the whole game. He is a catastrophizer when it comes to baseball. He is positive in all his other aspects of life, except for baseball. And, um, and, but this is what happens. Like, you just, it's a catastrophe. This little thing, it's over. It's not going to work. Or you minimize. Something is significant, and you're pushing it down. It's fine. It's fine. Everything's fine. It's great. You know, and you just push that down, minimize it when it needs to be addressed. Then there's emotional reasoning. So in this trap, this sounds like, I feel embarrassed, so I must be an idiot. Or I feel hurt, so they must hate me. This is taking an emotion and making a judgment about it that doesn't really necessarily go together. And then there's the should and the must. 
And so these are unrealistic expectations of ourself and others. I should have, they should have. It's very commanding and domineering. And I hate that this word is ever even created in our dictionary because it's caused so many problems. This, this word should um, is it, a trap that we get in. And then there's labeling and personalization. And it sounds like this. I'm completely useless. They're such an idiot. It's taking blame that is not yours or it's blaming others for what is your fault. And these are the traps that we, our thinking, gets in. So at Cornerstone, we talk about having what we call an out-of-brain experience to do what Paul says and take your thoughts captive. So here's what I mean. When you recognize and you become aware, I'm having a really negative thought. I'm having this really down thought. Which, which trap am I in? It's as if you take your brain and you put it in the middle of the room and you start walking around it. All right, brain, why, where did that come from? Why are you having that thought? Why, are you, why do you keep repeating it? that's annoying. You know, why, why, why now? I don't really have time to deal with this negative thought. That's going to really infect my day. You, know, you just start talking to this thought, right? And have this out of brain experience. Um, but it's more than that. Um, it's realizing I need to take this captive. Do you know when you've taken something captive, you're in charge of how much it gets fed? You're in charge of how much attention it gets, how much say it has. It is your captive. And this is what Paul's saying. Instead of just letting those negative thoughts rule your life, what if we could take them captive and say, I'm not sure I want to give you attention today. I'm not sure that actually is true. In fact, I want to challenge that. And I'm going to ask myself, is that negative thought actually true? What is more true than that thought? What is the actual truth? And to go even further, if Jesus were to enter the scene and walk around it with you, Jesus, what do you think of this thought? Is this accurate? Is this what you think of me? Is this line up with your truth? If the more you know Jesus, the more you will know what he has to say about that. And he will give you his thoughts on the matter, which change everything. Now, I know that sometimes depression, when we're experiencing it, it can lead to something heavier. And it can lead to thoughts that are really dark and have some suicidal ideation to them. And so I want to I touch on this, this for a second here. The key that I want you to remember is that when people have suicidal ideation or, um, they, or, or they talk about suicide itself or they, they, um, they take a complete suicide, um, that is a form of a coping skill. We don't think of it that way, but it is a negative coping skill. It is not healthy. It is not God's best. There's a lot of other coping skills that are not his best either, right? This is one of those. So when we jump to having ideas of just, if I just end my life, if I just do that, that is a way of we're trying to get out of a hard situation. We're trying to get away from the negative feeling. And that suicide is the same. It is when people feel like I have no other way to cope. I don't know what else to do. I need to make this pain stop. That is what this is about. And, and we need to understand it that way. So I want to read some, some symptoms that if you're experiencing these or you know somebody who, who is, you probably need to get some help. You need to get this addressed. You need to not be silent about it, and you need to, to address these things. So some of those include feeling hopeless, trapped, or if there's no way out, having persistent or worsening trouble sleeping. There's that sleep again or eating, feeling highly anxious or agitated, feeling like there's no reason to live, feeling rage or anger or resentment. There's the, all these contributors. I have to tell you that anger, when you see someone who's really, really angry, a lot of times what's underneath that anger is depression. 
and it's coming out as anger, and they need to get that dealt with. Um, engaging in risky activities without thinking about the consequences, increased alcohol or drug use, withdrawing from family or friends or other interests, things that they used to normally do, they just don't have, have the interest in, carrying too many concerns, people holding more than is theirs to hold, or lack of caring about anything, which we call compassion fatigue. You've carried too much too long, and now you just don't care. I just don't even care. Um, giving away prized possessions or tying up loose ends or making plans for how or when to attempt suicide and seeking the means to do so. Rarely is any one of those things the thing. It's a lot of times it's multiple. When you, if you are, or some of you know, has multiple of those going on, please, it's important to, to address that. And I'm gonna teach you for a minute how. What do we do if someone that we know has some of these symptoms going on? Well, the first thing you do, we call this emotionally wince with them. You need to acknowledge their emotion. This is hard. You are so, you are struggling deeply and you are hurting. I, I see that. I'm acknowledging it. We got to acknowledge the emotion before you do anything else. Because sometimes what we want to do is, okay, let's get moving. Let's do this. Let's do this. And it's annoying, right? And we got to acknowledge, we got to do what scripture did, lament with them. You are hurting. I can acknowledge that. Once you do that, then it's okay to say, what if we went and walked while you tell me about your hurt or your, how you're feeling? Now you're starting to get them moving while they're processing. Get them outside. Stimulate the brain. Remember, we got to get that stimulated. Journal, music, be around people. Um, think about how the people in scripture coped. What did they do? They did all these types of things. And then, then you can challenge their negative thinking. Can I, can I walk around this thought with you? Can I challenge it? I can't tell you how much that has helped me and my life, my husband and people I work with, if I'm stuck in a negative thought, I'm able to say, hey, this is where I'm stuck and I'm struggling to get around it. And they'll ask me, Carrie, is it true? What evidence do you have that it's true? What's more true? And just having somebody to help me challenge that thought shifts everything. So there is this great gatekeeper training and I'm going to give it to you super fast. It's called QPR and it stands for question, persuade, refer. So the question part of this is to simply ask someone, if you're concerned, if they are having suicidal thoughts or ideation, just ask, are you thinking of, of taking your life? Or say something like, sometimes when people feel as down as you do, they have thoughts of hurting themselves or taking their life. Are you having any of those? They have done a ton of research that is showing that will not put the thought in their mind. It won't. Sometimes we're afraid to ask because we're afraid to put the thought there. It will not do that. It is better to ask the question which engages their prefrontal cortex. Now they're thinking, well, am I? No, I, no, I'm not really having that thought. No, I'm not there. Here's what I'm, where I'm at. It, it allows them, or if they are, it allows them to have to answer the question, right? And, and answer it and start to process. And that's good. So question, you're looking for thoughts, ideation, plans. Do they have the means to do it? Do they intend to? I'm not trying to teach you to be counselors, but these are some of those quick things to look for. P is for persuade. This means you say something like, I really care about you. I, I believe you are not stuck. I believe this emotion, you're feeling this down, will not last forever. Would you allow me to help you get help? Okay, this is you're persuading them towards getting the help they need. Um, and then you refer. So referring them to a place or a phone number or something. Now, I would say one of the best things you can do is sit with them and say, hey, what if we call right now? Could we just call somebody right now together, um, a resource, or could we? Um, could I just go with you there and I'll go in with you and we'll get you, we'll get you on their list to be seen. 
Um, they, um, the, the Valley Church has put together a QR code that you all can scan when you go out that has a lot of local resources. And I really encourage you all to do that. Even if it's not for you, have them on your phone so that if, if your life coincides with someone who is feeling depressed and is having suicidal ideation, you have those at the ready to give them. That is crucially important to have those ready. The other things you can do is always you can refer them to an emergency room, take them to an emergency room, call 911. You can also use the National Suicide Hotline number, which is 988. Super simple. Um, You can use that, or you can text 741741. I've had clients use this text number, and they said they get right back to you, and it's a conversation, and it's been very helpful for several people. I would encourage you to put these numbers in your phone, even if you don't need them, so that you have them to share with people, right? And just say to somebody who's down, hey, let's put these numbers in your phone. You need to remove as many barriers as we can to them getting the help that they need. Now, there are times that the worst case scenario happens and someone does take their life by suicide. And uh, I want to talk just briefly about what do we do if if we know someone who has lost a loved one or a friend to suicide, which several several in here may, may have. What do we do? Part of that is to remember it's always multifactorial. It's never because of one person or one thing. Depression and suicide, they're always because of multiple factors going on. Remember, it's a form of coping when they don't think they have, that's why they did this, because they didn't think they, they didn't know what else to do. And then there's my, I have a favorite quote about grief by David Kessler. It says, all grief needs to be witnessed. This is something that we are not doing well as a church um, and really showing our, our culture as a whole how to do it. Grief needs to be witnessed. When someone is grieving, they need someone to acknowledge it. They need someone to say, you are grieving and it's okay. You don't have to be okay right now. You can be hurting. And to acknowledge that is huge. Um, Grief comes in waves and shows up in a myriad of symptoms. And there's this tends to be, when there's been suicide, a wave of guilt that goes out to everyone who even knew the person. And everyone thinks it was their fault. And it wasn't. It's never one person's fault. You do not have that much authority in life. It is never your job to keep somebody alive. Okay? That, that, and make sure they make all the, these certain decisions. You don't have that much authority. That's not on you. And so this guilt wave goes out. And we have to and you have to realize what was on the person's mind as they were ending their life. It probably wasn't you, okay? They were so down in themselves, right? It was probably about their pain. It wasn't a blaming thing, right, on you. Um, the first three months after a death are shock, and then three to six months after that, shock begins to wear off, and the emotions start to come. So don't stop checking in with people who've had a loss after three months. They need it throughout the first and second years, especially. Um, Sharing stories about their loved one. I, I can tell you, I have worked with hundreds of grieving people and they all tell me the same thing. I would rather have somebody say my loved one's name and ask me how I'm doing than not bring it up at all. We think we're protecting each other by not bringing it up and like, let's not say their name because they might cry. Do you know that tears are okay? That's okay. And I've, so many grieving people I've talked with, they said, no, I'd rather than bring up my loved one's name even if I cry because that means they're not forgotten right? So say their loved one's name and then start talking about how that person lived, not how they died. 
How they died was a moment of their life. How they lived is what mattered, right? And so you need to begin, tell me stories about how, how did your loved one live? Tell me those stories. I have a story. I remember them, and I want to tell you this special story that is significant. And as the body of Christ helping each other grieve well, we need to do that. That is significant. Another thing that can be really, really helpful Um, especially when someone has lost someone to suicide, is to ask them, even if you couldn't change the outcome, what would you have wanted to say? Because they didn't get to say goodbye, right? And so we can't change the outcome, but I have asked many, and this was so helpful to them, to, to tell me what they would have said, what they would have wanted to say, what they would want to make sure their loved one knew, um, from them. That is significant. Um, Give them encouragement to make meaning of it when they're ready. That means to honor and memorialize that life in some way. And I would say, remember this, that God's mercy is so vast and so great. There is a lot of question in people's minds when someone dies by suicide, well, did they go to heaven or not? And I have to tell you, we do not understand the vastness of the mercy of God, who in one moment, someone could say, God, I need to cry out, and he hears them, and he has mercy right? And we need to believe that it can happen like that. In that moment, they can reach out, even in the process of taking their life, and God can have mercy, right? And that loved one of theirs may be in the arms of Jesus right then because of that moment, right? So we just need to be cautious with those, those talking. We understand that the mercy of God, he pursues us to the end, right? He's always pursuing people. And then always refer them to counseling if they seem stuck. Now, as, as we've talked about a lot of things, I know it can seem heavy, and I want to end this morning uh, reading for you from, from David's journal. We're going to look at it, okay, from Psalm 42 and 43. And he is really pouring his heart out. But I want you to hear this because this is a model of when I feel down, how do I cry out to the God who can speak into my pain, who can speak into my depths of where I'm at and bring me through it? So listen, he says, as a deer longs for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and behold the face of God? My tears have been my food day and night. While people say to me continually, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my help and my God. My soul is cast down within me. All your waves and your billows have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. At night, his song is with me. I say to my God, why have you forgotten me? Why must I walk about mournfully because the enemy oppresses me? As with a deadly wound in my body, my adversaries taunt me and say, where is your God? Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my help and my God. He goes on to say, you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you cast me off? Why do I walk about mournfully? Uh, Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my help and my God. David was not afraid to present the depths, the weightiness of what he felt to the Lord, to the one who he said, I'll lean into this. I'll acknowledge it because I believe you'll meet me there and you will carry me through. Can I pray for you this morning?
Father, I thank you so much for these, my brothers and sisters in you. Lord, I know that there are some here today that deal with heaviness and are walking right now through a season of depression. And I pray that as they've hear, heard some of the tools you've given, you have provided for life and godliness, that they will interact with those. They will accept your invitation to ponder those more, to lean into you, and to have you begin to lift them up out of where they are. Father, I pray for those in here that either are having suicidal ideation or know of someone who is. Father, I pray that right now the power of your truth and your hope would would, um, encounter them in such a real way that they would trust that maybe there is a better way. Maybe God has hope for me. Maybe I can connect with someone. Maybe I can process through something. Father, would you bring the healing to their brain and to their emotions and their thoughts that is so needed. And God, for us as a, as a body of believers, would we, would we manage our thoughts in ways that honor you? Would we manage grief in a way that is honoring and walking alongside those who are grieving? Father, would we do all of this in the name of Jesus, who we believe wants hope and healing for all of us? Thank you for this this group. Thank you for the impact they have on their communities. Would you be with them and go with them in your name? Amen. As you exit today, there's a code that they would love you for you to scan to get more information about resources in the community. I know there are people who are willing to pray if you need that up front. Other than that, I hope you have a blessed Sunday. And please come back next week. They're doing a really neat series for you on some of these elephant in the room topics. So you won't want to miss out. Bless you. for joining us today. To stay up to date with our weekly messages, make sure to subscribe and follow us on social media. You can check us out on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, or download our app to stay connected with all things the Valley. And if today's message impacted you, share it with a friend, because changed lives change lives.